0: So when you when you're a large corporation and you don't have the in-house capability or the want to do something, every time you're going out there to hire someone as a contractor, you're putting a lot on the line.
1: This episode of the BlueMex podcast is brought to you by Nava Wilson LLP. Nava Wilson LLP provides services in real estate corporate law and litigation, and is committed to increasing access to, and awareness of, the justice system. Nava Wilson is also the legal advisor for y York University's incubator, and The Hub, the University of Toronto Scarborough Campus's incubator. They are willing to provide up to $5,000 worth of services to a select few startups in Toronto. If you're a startup looking for access to legal services, contact us at the link below to find out more. All right, we're on with Dikshant from Tornet. Um, Dikshant, man, so you came out of the hub as well from UTSC. Um, as a student, you started a well, a main, a one company that didn't work out the way you wanted. And from that, led out Tornet, as I understand it, right? You came here two, a few days ago and had a great presentation to talk about you know, your, your life as a founder and how you started a company that led up into the mainland of business you're doing, which now allows you to work with many other companies. Many other startups help build, help build companies from the ground up and from a technical standpoint. So you're really fascinating in that sense. So we had this conversation a lot about how you're not, you have no real, uh, you're not a technical co-founder. You're, you're, not, a, uh, you're not a programmer in, that, in any kind of sense, but you have discovered a way to analytically break down software and understand the architecture of it. And the way you, you deal with complex problems is very is interesting, and especially for the age you're at. You hit way above your weight class, in that kind of sense. Um, So I had a pleasure of like working with you and learning from you as well. Um, So I want to break that down. So Toronet is your main line of business right now, right? Yes. Stands for uh, Toronto India IT. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that. How? Where did
0: that come from? And how did you how you built that business? Sure, man. So thank you for having me here to talk about this. First of all, Toronet was really, you know, it came out of it came out of anger, it came out of need. It came out of sleepless nights. It came out of uh, it just it came out of passion. yeah, It was something that I can't explain whether it was one thing that led me to start the company. Maybe it was a series of events. Mm-hmm. But this those series of events, you know, as i recall it, the first one was um, my co-op term with RBC. Uh, so I'm working at this huge bank that employs one hundred thousand people. Around the world that does billions of dollars in revenue Um, and I'm sitting there as a co-op student in TNO which is technology and operations I was an associate I was a technology associate there and you know I'm dealing with uh, with offshore technology teams some were in Ukraine some were in India some were in China and you know my managers trying to sort of figure out what did we tell them to do and what they did were just two completely different edges, yep. right? Like, if we communicated A, they commu—they delivered Z after, you know, $120 million, mm. right, in, into the project. And I'm just going, you know, holy hell, how, how does anyone do that, right? The reality, though, was that the vendor, at that time was in India, who took this project mm-hmm. and just ripped us off, like, they knew that it was too late for us to step out and they knew that we would pay another $100 million as a bank to go from Z back to A. Hmm. So they just—they were just murdering us in, in terms of charging us whatever they wanted, whatever they wanted, the management on, on the RBC front, on, on basically who were managing the vendors. We were doing whatever we could. The problem in a large organization is The person who negotiated the deal with vendor is here, and the person who's dealing with the vendor is here. So, you know, there's so many communications gap that came in, but the one thought out of that was that this vendor is ripping us off as as a company, as RBC, and I couldn't stand that for two reasons. One, because I came from India, and that gave a bad impression of all Indians in IT. Mm. Second, they were ripping off my company, even though, you know, I was not a shareholder of RBC or owned RBC at any point, but I was working there, right? So, so it pissed me off, enough and I said, you know, one day I'm just gonna start a company that's gonna do things right, mm-hmm. that's gonna make software the way it's supposed to be made, that's gonna understand the users behind, the user journeys behind, that's gonna understand what kind of digital experiences does this organization really need. And you know, really work with them step by step and step to step to get them to where they were. So I'm just a co-op student. You have to understand, this is me at 18 years old, right? 18 or maybe 19, I'm not too sure. I came in 2011, I was 17 and a half when I got into university. So my co-op, I was probably 19. And a 19 year old, you know, I was just angry about what was happening and then suddenly, this whole news breaks out, you know, that uh, RBC is hiring vendors to to get rid of Canadian jobs. Mm. I'm basically now the people I hate, which are these vendors, they were everywhere, you know, doesn't matter. These vendor companies that, that RBC was using, I hate these, but I was supposed to defend them because RBC was caught down by this, you know, national propaganda that RBC was letting go of Canadian nationals and people who worked there for 20 years and hiring vendors who have operations overseas. And that just killed me even more, right? so at the end of the four months actually i was there for eight months so my initial co-op term was four months and then they they told me to do another four and i did And the last week of that eight months i said you know I, I got too sick of working there in terms of looking at practices and what was going on and i said i just gotta do something about it and that day the last day in rbc i registered the company torn <laughs> so it wasn't just rbc because when i got there yeah that's what opened my eyes that you know, we need to open a company that produces software, not just for the sake of producing software, but for the, for the sake of creating digital legacies that someone's gonna use and you know make sense of, right? And so when I came in RBC, I saw that that was clearly not happening. But even then, even after that, registration of company at the end of my day on RBC, you just don't start a company by registering it, right? I was too foolish to think, I'm 19 years old, I've registered a company, I'm gonna go out there and try to build a team, try to make sales, try to build a product deck, try to build my service stack. That clearly didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Came back to university, I think 1920, I I, I don't remember, but this was 2013, I came back to university, I said, "I'm I'm gonna finish my courses, While I'm finishing my courses, I'm going to start working on this company. So as you rightly said, Tornet today is uh, is a digital product enabler. So we work with small, medium, large enterprises and startups, whether Pre-Seed, Seed or Series A, to help them build technological products. So whether they're hardware software or they're just pure software, or it's a mobile app, it's a web app, it's an internal system, doesn't matter. We try and understand digital journeys and convert them into legacies. And you know we, we don't use the word legacy lightly. Everything that we touch, we try and put uh, a lot of thought into the product itself before we even write a single line of code. So for us, software is life. For us, mobile apps, web apps, internal apps, our, our communication between human and technology is what inspires us, what makes us wake up in the morning as a company, and what we love delivering and, you know, doing. But it wasn't always like this. So when I started the company, when I registered the company to when I started actually working in the company, there was a three-year gap. And that gap, I was basically learning as much as I could. So I came back in 2013 to university after I'd already registered the company. I knew what I wanted to do vaguely but I also knew that I didn't know how to begin, where to begin. And everything that I wanted to do needed money, man. Like, yeah. you know, you wanna, you wanna start a website, that costs money. You wanna attend an event, that costs money, right? You wanna, there are very few things as a startup you can do that only require your time
1: mm-hmm.
0: or just, your skill set, right? Especially when you're trying to build a scalable business. So I took three years to really define our business model, to really learn that business model in another company. So not a lot of people know, perhaps you don't either, Ravi, but mm-hmm. I actually worked full time oh, yeah. in a technology company out of Netherlands. Oh yeah? Yeah. It's in, in, in Netherlands? In Toronto. in Toronto. So I opened their Canadian offices. I was the only employee they had. Okay. And I basically met the CEO at a bar and he said, yeah, I'm just here in business. You know, I come to Canada. I'm trying to open an office here. We have two clients and, you know, we need an account manager for those clients and maybe get more clients in this city or in this country. So I said, okay, well, I'm still a student at U of T, but I'm looking into starting something of my own like this. So I wouldn't mind learning, you know, as to how you do this. He's like, would you work on X dollars per year? I said, sure, why not? Like, I was gonna work for free anyway. And he said, will you you do this? And I said, okay, let me think about it. You know, I'll get back to you sort of thinking about how my vision of business actually fit into this company. That CEO was trying to convince me that instead of opening your own company, once you get into the company, you realize that, you know, you can just do so much more with Nintech Canada than start your own, yeah. which is the company's name, Nintech, in Netherlands. So I said, okay, let me get back to you. I got back to them, and I said, okay, here's what I want. I want to work directly with you, Mr. CEO, so I can learn. That's my condition, number one. I really don't care about the money, and I could care less about everything else that you were offering me, which is you know car rentals and things like that and I I said all I want to do is I want to learn but I want to be honest with you I'm only going to be here one year after that first year I'm going to go start my own company so that time clearly he thought I was joking I'm a 20 year old kid sitting in front of a 50 year old you know CEO who runs a company that has 1400 employees globally yeah and which you said no to salary too yeah and I said (laughs) no I you know I, I don't care about the money and I don't care about all of this. I just want to learn from you. I want to learn the craft that you have mastered in the last ten years, right? And you know his immediate response was, "I love that. Let's start working together." Um, and then he passed me on to the CEO of their Indian offices, and you know he sort of said, "Okay, I'm coming to Canada. let's meet. let's set some expectations, let's understand." These are the two accounts you wanna manage. That was basically my first dip into software development services. Like that was my dip into, okay, here's how a smaller company, here's how it feels like to be on the other end of RBC. Mm. So I saw the client side, but I never knew what existed on the vendor side and why were they ripping us off, right? And when I joined this company, I worked there for a year, I realized, why they were ripping off organizations like my first employer right and that was because they could it was so easy right so this company from a vendor perspective was no different than i started working for and you know very quickly it was very you know it was absolutely clear that you know they would go to these large corporations i won't name them uh, because i'm actually not sure if the nda is still valid or not for those accounts but You know, we would go to those large corporations and say, this website is going to cost a million dollars to build. And and when I say website, I'm genuinely talking about like a WordPress website that a student, computer science student here at U of T, could could make in like maybe two weeks. Okay. Right?
1: And was that because they're charging a premium just because of brand, image?
0: Like... So, when, you, when you're a large corporation and you don't have the in-house capability or the want to do something, every time you're going out there to hire someone as a contractor, you're putting a lot on the line. First thing that you're putting on the line is your time. What if this vendor doesn't deliver? Mm-hmm. I've now lost a month of time, right? What is a month of time to a company that wants to do something with their website? It's huge. It's tens of millions of dollars. Right. suddenly, this you know this website that couldn't cost you know with the whatever math you take more than fifty thousand or twenty thousand even was sold for a million bucks. Jeez. Yeah, and it's not like these vendors stopped there. Like it's not that these vendors said, "Okay, we've made a million, let's give them a good product." It was like, "Okay, they were stupid enough to give us a million. Mm. Let's let's get another half a million from them on change requests." Right. So I got pissed off. I'm like, okay, now I've seen how vendors really do it. When I start my own company, I'm gonna just re- revolutionize the way we engage with our clients. We're not gonna do all this, right? So I'm making my business model that's gonna be unique compared to all these other vendors. And this gig that I did for a year really helped me do that. On my, I resigned uh, within a year as I promised the CEO and I, I, my, my reason for resigning were two. one, I wanted to start my company. And second was, you know, that was the best goddamn one year of my life in terms of knowing what not to do. Yeah. Like in terms of knowing, what do you not want to do when you want to start your own company? You know, that company grew too quickly, too fast, had too much expenditure. So if a website costed any other vendor 20,000 and they wanted to sell it for 50,000 to this company it costed them 50,000 and they were selling it for a million. Right. Mm -hmm. So I learned a lot about how not to grow so quickly, how not to get excited on opportunities that are, that may not be so good for you. So I'll quickly give you an example. You know, I passed on $3 million worth of revenue year one of the company. Year one, I got an opportunity with a large parking company. I can't name them, but very large parking company They're In North America, they're near every airport, right? They wanted to build a web app and a mobile app so people could book parking spaces before they went to the airport. And I said no to that. And I'm so proud of the fact that I said no to that is because if I had said yes and said, suppose I had taken 20% 20% of that revenue in that year and booked that as revenue i wouldn't be able to perform on it i knew that my capabilities at that time weren't enough to justify a 3 million dollar software development and i was uh, you know for lack of a better term i was man enough in the organization to say we're not going to touch this we're very new. We're going to start slow, 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 develop the capability, develop the, the people, develop the knowledge base so we can get to a point where we can sell these $3 million accounts, we can sell these $7 million accounts, sell $10 million projects, right? And so we sort of, I, I really believed in that concept of walking, then sort of running, and yeah. then sort of sprinting, right? So.
1: Yeah, that systematic approach of, of uh, growth, I mean, that takes a lot of discipline, for sure. Right. Um, I mean, that's really hard to say when you're, when you're just starting up to say no to that kind of money. But mm-hmm. I, I, I gave I you reasoning. But does it make sense to get the opportunity and like sell it to a different organization, like your previous employer,
0: right? Yeah, so reputation mattered a lot to mm-hmm. me. It continues to matter a lot to me. Um, in this industry in the industry i'm in which is you know a digital agency or a software development shop or a technology consulting company reputation is really not a thing like you go around the block yeah it's all whatever is in the contract is in the contract if i tell you to write this font differently it costs you another thousand dollars and change requests i have to change requests so it's a very consulting approach you know yeah. No, nothing different than the big fours, nothing different than anything else, you know, they just want, they want their businesses to charge per hour, so they charge per hour. For me, it was, okay I take this three million dollars in revenue and I give it to a company that is able to do it and if they're not able to do it, I'm taking on that risk of three million, right? Suppose this company takes two million dollars from me and I keep a million. I'm just giving an example, right? I keep a million and i manage the project i'm facing the client by the way this is how majority of mobile app development companies in yeah. toronto are yeah. they just don't show you that right? yeah. there're a bunch of companies they get the uh, contract and subcontract it out exactly and you know a few of them because i've told you about them i'm not going to name them and defame them now but but basically i didn't want to be that middleman because i was not confident in anyone else's capability and imagine like RBC was not dealing with a small vendor. Yeah. You have to understand, like RBC was dealing with probably one of the largest companies in technology in the Asia-Pacific region. Mm-hmm. And they messed up. Yeah. So, how, like, how do I take my word, give it to someone, saying, yeah, I'll build all of this. This is the journey. This is for mobile. This is for web. This is for your internal system. This is how your van guys are going to go pick up people will know that, okay, there's someone who's parked. Uh, Like I just couldn't do it. I couldn't take that money and say, yeah, I'll build it, go out and try to build an internal um, sort of either contracted out or building an internal capability so fast because I would have failed. As I said, I never went down that path, so I don't know what would have happened. But I could imagine what would have happened, which was I would have failed miserably. Mm. My reputation would have gone down the pipe. I would have never been able to do any business with that group again. Granted that I didn't get business from them first year, but I did get another business from them second year. Because they understood that I said no when I couldn't deliver, right? So it fed so forward? Think, yeah, it absolutely does. Like, I honestly think that You cannot sustain a long-term relationship in any kind of business, whether it's consulting business, development business, (coughs) or even a retail business. You cannot sustain a long-term loyalty or a relationship with with your customers unless and until you're being completely honest with them. Like 100% honesty. And that policy, man, has never, ever disappointed me. Like if you're honest with your employees, if you're honest with your core team, if you're honest with your shareholders, if you're honest with your board, if you're honest with your customers, there is no power in the entire world that's not going to show you the next step.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Like today, a lot of companies understand this and they're going about it this way back in the days i mean you look at case studies and you you know they teach us all of this in universities whether it's harvard courses or, or business review cases or uft it doesn't matter but they teach you you know how there's always this gap between you know top leadership and then you know another layer of leadership and then another layer of leadership and then employees and then customers like customers never knew what was going in their bottles that they were drinking because the top leadership just wanted to protect it so much and the laws were you know, created to protect these companies. You know, There were lobbying done on patent laws and all of this, right? In today's day and age, think about any company that you buy from mm-hmm. and tell me that it doesn't, you know, what matters to you most when you buy from them. And I guarantee you the bottom line will be transparency and knowing how well they do what they do. That's right? awesome, man. Um, so let's flip back to Tornet, right?
1: So you started you started right off the bat, you called it Tornet because you knew exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah. Of, well, of, uh, like, you started entering the market space.
0: Like, what were your first few clients like? Oh, yeah, <laughs> so officially launched the company in late 2015, uh-huh. early 2016. Uh, first few clients, you know, as you can imagine, you get a consulting company, that's what we were, That's what we were positioned as before. Now our business has completely changed, even the core services are still the same. But um, in back in 2016, majority of, of the customers we got, yep. majority of them, they were basically looking for a cheaper solution. We didn't have a capability that we could say, okay, we're worth, you know, a thousand dollars an hour. Do you understand what yeah. I'm saying? Like Deloitte's worth X amount an hour. Yeah. Because they've been doing this for so long, right? Like a lawyer is worth X amount an hour because they know where to look. Yeah. And how quickly to get back to you. We didn't know any mm. of this. We're just starting out. So the only customers we could get initially were the customers who'd would even give us a project, and that was a mistake I made. Which was, I took projects that were costing me, let's say, I'm going to give you any, like I'm just for for instance, if that project costed me, let's say, hundred thousand dollars, I accepted fifty thousand for it. But it's not that I did this knowingly. I did this unknowingly. Yeah. I thought that the project costed me forty grand, so I can sell it for fifty grand. But but you know, in technology you know you want an app built like this it's yeah. very hard to assume that the developer who's going to make this app is going to take those many hours to build or not right it was a very traditional model our model at that time was we would give you an hourly rate and if you gave us a requirement of okay what you wanted to build yeah. we'll sort of consult and say maybe you should build it this way and if you build it this way it's going to cost you this much and clearly because that was a very traditional approach it didn't last very long like a lot of, to be fair, a lot of technology companies still use that approach. Yep. When I say a lot, maybe like 80% plus still will quote you per hour, per project, right? Uh, per month, or I'll give you these many developers you and at this cost. In 2016, I realized that if your developers are telling you that it's going to cost you 40 grand and you sell it for 50 you've just lost it. You've broken your back, you can never get up again because that's what was happening to me. I was taking one project that would cost me, you know, 60% more than what I charge for it and then I'd do the same thing. I'd take another project to get out of this hole and then it was basically a credit cycle. I just didn't realize fast enough that I'm not making any money. Yeah. (laughs) All I'm doing He's taking a new project, new project, new project to cover the hole for the next, pro- you know, the old project. And at some point, this cycle's gonna end. When this, and when this cycle ends, on that last month, I'll be out my loss, which may be $100,000, maybe $200,000, maybe a million, who knows? So I quickly realized that and I said, I'm not gonna do this. I'm gonna start really digging deep into business problems and then proposing technology solutions for them and then selling my services to customers who understand that there is not a single cost per hour for a developer I will be very honest with them and say this costed me X can you pay me X multiplied by 1.2 right and I found those customers that was the good thing I was fortunate enough what I found You know, this newspaper group, um, I'm going to name them because we can, it's Snap Newspaper Group. I don't know if you know about them. Out of Markham? uh, Yeah, which is, uh, they were out of, uh, what's the, up north? More than, uh, north of Markham? What's Um, that? Stovall. Stovall. North of Stovall. Newmarket. 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 Yeah. I don't know if it's south of Stovall or north of Stovall, but, so, I was very honest with them. I said, you know, I'm going to give you this person to do this. I believe it's going to cost this, but if it doesn't, I'm going to be very honest with you and share my cost. They said, fine. They said, fine. So they dig me out of the hole. We built so many things for them, right? Not a lot of people know, but Snap Newspaper Group is not just a newspaper group. They also do websites and all the other things for their clients who advertise in Snap, right? And they did this augmented reality app. So, if there's an if there's an ad in the newspaper, you just scan it, yeah, and it'll play, right? I remember so, my dad was super into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of that is there. Um, having said that, just you know, you'll find customers if you're completely honest with them. They will actually gain what they have to from you in terms of the value that you propose, but actually help you get out of the you know get out of the Problem you're in when you're starting out. You're always in a problem when you're starting yeah. out. Right? <laughs> uh, s- reminds me of McDonald's. McDonald's make sure that their vendors, who they buy cups from, or they buy fish from, McDonald's makes sure that they're always strong. Like McDonald's makes sure that this fish vendor is not going bankrupt. Yeah. Like we're paying them enough margin so they can sustain, so they can give us a longer-term supply. If, if McDonald's fish supplier tomorrow breaks down, what do you think is going to happen to McDonald's? There's no fish or filet, man. Yeah. Like it's, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone. And that's, you know, 100 times more valuable than paying a cent more for this fish, right? So I think they understood that. Yeah. So keep your vendors alive. <laughs> keep your vendors, keep your team, keep your employees always, always happy. Keep yeah. listening to them. Like if a vendor is saying, you're killing me, I can't do this price, man, honestly, next time, don't bargain, yeah. because if there is no next time, and you've built a business model around that pricing, you're failing and you're putting that vendor up for failure, Yeah. and the moment that happens, it's not sustainable and it's not scalable. Right? Don't you feel this happens a lot in the market though, like a lot of people are doing short term plays, they try to bleed out their vendors, just focus on the short term, and just move on but you answered the question yourself, right? Like there are a lot of these guys who come and go. Yeah. Like since I started the company, I've had four or five competitors who went out and nominated themselves for PWC Innovators of the, you know, of the Year Award and they got it, they paid for it. Like they you nominate yourself and, but they came and they went, you know, they come in, they get, you know, let's say, X million dollars worth of project they mess it up and they leave and this is not just my industry any industry they'll always come they will try to basically not a lot of them have bad intentions it's just that they're trying to play the business the right way like they're trying to deal with their vendors in a way that that makes most prudent sense to them right like I'll quickly give you an example you want to uh, print brochures, right? You want to print brochures okay. uh, and a banner. You'll go to a printing company and say, can you give me this? I'll take a 500 now, and maybe I'll come back to you for 1,500. You give them that hope for the next 1,500 to say, OK, well, you know, maybe we give them a decent price now so that they come back for 1,500. That's fine. That's healthy negotiation, right? And that's a one-time thing, so I'm not saying, don't negotiate with your vendors. I'm saying negotiate with them, but don't beat them down if you're gonna reuse them consistently, yeah. right? Because if I get used to the fact that I can use this printing guy's services on, a, on an ongoing basis for a dollar per booklet, and I end up selling them for $2, suddenly this vendor dies, can't do anything. I go to the next vendor, and he can only sell me the booklet for a dollar eighty. I've built a business model around selling that booklet for $2. I'm missed, Yeah. right? I can't just go to the customers and say, now pay me $3, right? So always, always be in tune of all the, sh- not just the shareholders, but the stakeholders of your business, right? And, and I, I have a very small enterprise yet. So whatever I'm telling you is based on whatever I've learned in that small enterprise. As you go larger, you have different sets of problems. Your problem is not negotiating on money anymore, it's negotiating on time and your go-to-market and how quickly can you can you launch the new phone with an old, you know, OLED screen than, than the competitor can, right? How quickly can we give 5G phones and 5G networks than my competitor? So when you become a large corporation your challenge is you value time more when you're a small business, you value cash more. But in my in my business in Tornit, I sort of do. I follow the large enterprise approach a little bit more than the small company approach. So I do care about cash flow. But to me, time is king. Yeah. Like if you, you won't believe, like if you know, if I've got a contract and I have employees that I'm, you know, I'm budgeted for and I'm paying them to deliver this contract, and I have even 1% of doubt that they'll not be able to deliver it by this time, I'll actually go pay double to a vendor that I trust will actually get this done in time. So sometimes you value time more.
1: You know? Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah, I mean, so you've grown Tornet. At- these, through these uh, contracts and to a sizable enough firm to be able to take bets on uh, smaller companies. Yeah, so that's
0: interesting, eh? Yeah,
1: so now you find these interesting startups and rather than telling companies, it's like, hey, you need a technology solution made, you gotta, you gotta pay X amount to get it made, and they go out and try to raise capital at a lower cap, raise the capital to pay or pay a team or pay a person to like, build out the technology solutions, you tell them, hey, I'll take equity, I'll co-invest with you, I'll build this technology with you, and together we'll raise capital, we'll build your business up, and I'll exit at a later time. Almost like a private equity kind of play. That's interesting, because
0: not a lot of people are doing that. Yeah, yeah, it's risky. Yeah, it's risky, yeah. It's risky, but, um, but, you know, companies, and uh, you know this, Ravi, but companies act like, they're very founder centric. Mm. So the culture of the company becomes what the f- culture of the founder is. And uh, you know int- intrinsically I'm a very risky player like in personal life. And yeah. So I always loved those r- risky ventures. <laughs> <laughs> even though entrepreneurs are very risk averse, contrary to uh, popular belief, we like to you know anticipate and do very educated sort of you know analysis and then take steps. So I but what we started to do in Tornit, with that riskiness in mind is we we went to startups and we said what are you trying to do what difference are you trying to make in the world and what's stopping you and this was 2016 and 90% of the times you know they're making they, they want to make a real difference in the world man yeah and there's a market for this stuff like it's not that you can't build a business and this is all cloudy and you know, this is all dreamy. They're good ideas. Some of them are brilliant ideas. Some of them have, are much more than ideas because they have business models carved out of them. They know how are they gonna make money, when are they gonna start making money, how much profit are they gonna make, what equity value will they become of mm-hmm. in 10 years? Like A lot of these startups had what it took in terms of the work that they had already done to go launch their ventures, to go build on their ventures. Ninety percent of them came back and said, the biggest problem we have is there are two. One, we don't know how to start on our digital product journey. So do we just hire a developer? Do we hire a designer? Do we learn courses online? Because they're not trained to do this in Gifty. You know, they're not trained to do this in, in uh, McGill. They're not trained to do this in Harvard. They're not, they're trained to go into a company, become part of an organization and do the best they can in that role, right? So how, like, they just don't know. They don't know if I want to build an app, where do I start? Mm -hmm. Do I raise money so I can build a team of developers and designers and testers? And market validators, do I build a board of directors that can sit around us and tell us how to do this? Do I go and raise money from my friends and family and start building the app? Or should I just give up on this, right? So when I realized that there were so many companies, so many individuals, so many partners, so many two people sort of ventures Mm -hmm. that had legs to them, that had arms to them, that had, you know, this hidden gem in them, and all they needed was a technology partner who can build their products, show them a roadmap of how to scale that product and not charge money for it. Yeah. That's how it started. Like so many of them had you know, had even letter of intents from large governments saying that. The government said, if you can build this service, we'll license it from you, right? And they had no money to go out and uh, build that service, build that app that allows that service, that enables it. So I came in and I said, OK, Tornit needs to do something about it. Tornit needs needs to go and identify these hidden gems get them as part of our team, build their app for them against equity, and then grow them to a level where they could exit at some point, uh, where we could exit at some point from their venture and, you know, reap up the benefits of investing. So instead of making the $100 an hour revenue, which is very limited, you can only make so much of it, right? Like, hundred dollars an hour, thousand hours, what is that, hundred thousand dollars, right? That's a very, that's a very traditional business model. And you know, it's got legs to it, don't, don't get me wrong, but everyone's doing that, right? Everyone's doing that, you gotta prove yourself more, you gotta to continue to, remove, you know, control your costs so you can make money off that, you can continue, like, it's just, it's a struggle. You know? yeah. At the end of that hundred thousand uh, dollar in revenue, you retain 20% gross profit, right? So you're making $20,000 a $100,000 sale. Versus in this business model, you're basically starting a new company with a startup with sincere founders, committed founders, committed management team, know what they're doing, there's a large enough market, and there's a large enough problem that needs to be solved. So we go in, suppose for example, I'll talk about quickly, Let's l- look at an example of worker bee, right? Or well, you know what? I'll start with Wark first. Okay. Yeah. Wark. Why work when you can work? It's yeah. basically that concept. Nice. So uh, you can even go to their website. Just go wark.com. Um, basically, you know, these founders came to me and they said, on you know, they were in Whistler at this very very expensive property. Uh, probably the most expensive property in Canada, and there's at this restaurant, they, they're trying to get into this restaurant, Milestones. And they see about 45 to 50 tables empty, and there's a 50-minute waiting line. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what is this? Just go to gowork.com. Gowork.com? Gowork.com, yeah. So like, you know, they're saying, what is this? There's tables, there's chairs, there's clearly food in the kitchen. Why are we lining up for 50 minutes or an hour just to get into? Like, why, why, are, why are we waiting? Yeah. And then they go ask the manager and the manager said, well, you know, five of our servers who were supposed to show up today didn't show up. Wow. Yeah. And they never told yeah. us. With restaurants, they had that big problem with like, okay. labor, right? Right. Yeah. So they said, OK, well, how many times does this happen? Like, yeah, twice or thrice every week this happens <laughs> to that one property. Right? So guess what, they didn't wait 50 minutes, yeah. they went to another restaurant, had a glass of beer, and said we need to do something about this. They came to me and they said, do you believe in this? I said, okay, give me two days. I love the idea, I love the concept, but I just need to understand the market size, the problem size, and the core problem behind not showing up to work is it that they get busy or is it that they you know it's lack of maturity and information to the restaurant or is it that there's not enough talent and there's huge demand so i went back and i did my research and turned out there was huge demand for restaurant staff and then there was huge supply of restaurant staff mm. and there was a, this big gap in in the connecting of it and you know no one really cared to solve it Well, I shouldn't say no one really, but a few companies that are doing a decent job, you know, out in the States, some in Europe. But in in Canada, there's, there's no one that's doing this specifically for the restaurant industry. So I said, okay, you know what, I'll build the app for you. I'll build a platform, not just an app, where employers can sign up and tell us about whoever they need in the restaurant. And as soon as they type that they need a chef, we'll show them whatever whoever you know has the ability to be a chef. Yeah. And they can filter through sort of you know people, and they can call them, they can schedule interviews, and if they like them, they can even book them through the app and through the platform. And on the other hand, the staff, you know, the, the employees, they needed something like this. A lot, you know, majority of times employees in restaurants don't show up because they forget that they had shifts. You know why do they forget? Because they manage, majority of restaurants manage schedules on a piece of paper yeah. that they then circulate in a photo, right? Like that's insane, yeah. we're in 2019, it's crazy. Majority of restaurants still today have like a resume box, <laughs> drop this in. Yeah. Where do those resumes show up? Unless and until it's the need of the hour today. Can you come now? It Doesn't work that way, right? Yeah. So it's just, so I love the concept Right? This is pretty much on-demand labor. On-demand, on I, I won't call it labor because it's politically incorrect, yeah. but, <laughs> but on-demand talent, right, yeah. for the restaurant industry. we specifically focus on the restaurant industry is because we believe that the way to build digital solutions is that a solution needs to be around a person. And it needs to be launched in one industry. And if it's successful there, then you can scale industries. So the technology is industry agnostic. Okay. Right? Tomorrow, if you wanted construction workers, you could put construction workers in there, right? If you want a dentist, we could put dentists yeah, in there, right? Yeah, yeah. If you want dental hygienists, we could put whatever it is, right? But digital products only succeed when they're built around a person and launched in an industry. I'll quickly give you an example. Salesforce succeeded not because it was the best ERP system in the world, not because it was the best CRM in the world, right? Is because it looked at and understood real problems of a salesperson and a sales manager and catered a product just for that when they launched. Now they're a much larger product suite, so let's not talk about that, right? But, you know, companies fail because, startups fail because they look at overall industry and they try to solve too many problems for too many people In multiple industries, you know, never build a product for a particular industry, right? Never. Just build a product for a person. Mm -hmm. Uber, I'm looking for a ride, right? I'm a person, I'm looking for a ride. Here's a person who can give me a ride. That's how they built their apps, right? Work, I'm a restaurant manager, I'm looking for a worker. I'm a worker, I'm looking for a gig. Mm -hmm. That's how we built it. Now, if you want to scale this to any industry, it's possible, but, but what do we believe this, this is worth? Now, as a, as a project to the company, if I just charged cash for it, I would have probably gotten you know a very decent margin. I would have probably met and netted 30-40% in it, mm-hmm. right? Because the founders had the financial means to pay for this as a product. But I said, no, I, I don't want to just take money up front. You're part of the project. I, wanna be, I, I, wanna, I want equity. Yeah. So Tornad owns 20% of this company, nice. right? If we own 20% today, even when we get diluted down, by the way, this company is just, you know, it's, that's the reason I picked this to, to, to show you is because it's just got so much to it, right? Like we're already piloting the app with a very, very large, uh, you know, restaurant chain. It's got, like, it's got every, every factor that's going to make it successful. And Tornit gets involved in the deep roots of it. Tornit's not just doing the technology development. Tornit's also doing the marketing. Mm-hmm. Tornit's also doing the sales. Tornit's also going to restaurants and saying, you need to be on this app in order to not just find talent. So if you, even if you're not finding talent right now, that's fine. You can schedule your existing staff. Instead of using that piece of paper... You can schedule that staff here, right? Not just that, if you wanna pay your staff members through the app instead of a payroll system, do that. You can even use a credit card to pay, right? So like we're not just, when we partner with a startup, we're not just a technology partner, we partner in your business. Like we look at, we get a board seat, we look at your strategy holistically and we help you whatever we can. That's, I think, and I think it's very similar to, you know, you've, you've faced problems hiding technology vendors, yeah. right? Like, And I know it, it hurts when, you, when I talk about this to you, but, but you know what I'm talking about, right? Like, Yeah, absolutely you, experienced that pain. You've experienced that pain to the worst possibility
1: mm-hmm.
0: where the situation became hostile and, you know, they just didn't want to do what you were asking them to do and continue to ask for more money, continue, right? Yeah. So, those companies that do this They're going to be there for another year, two years, three years, maybe someone will throw them a lifeline another four years, five years. They're making a living. They're not making a company around it, right? You can make a living by anything. When you're making a company, you're building a culture. You're building people, right? You're building customers, right? You're building vendors, you're building shareholders, you're building governments in some cases. It's like, it's a much larger responsibility. So if any of the entrepreneurs are listening, I would actually like to tell them, like the impact that each decision that you make has on the larger planet is actually a lot more than you realize today. Mm. So don't try to just be selfish and make a living. Don't try to compromise on your values and the business model's values on day one. Like, don't. Someone gives you less money than you deserve, don't take it. Someone gives you, you know, an X, Y, Z reason to not go with your services, don't move your business. That's just one person's opinion. Come back, look at the facts. And lastly, what I'd like to tell Mm -hmm. them, and this is something I spoke about last week with you also, is that, you know, Always, 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 always surround yourself with people who may not be the smartest people in the room, who may not be the most hardworking people in the room, but would be absolutely honest with you in terms of anything that you give them. Mm-hmm. You know, like you, a lot of times you're just discussing with your co founders or your core team saying, What do you think about this idea, right? Always follow facts, patterns, and not be opinionated on things that you believe or your team member of yours believe that this could be a hit. Yeah. Right. Like, look at any other story. Airbnb, right? Airbnb, it took them four or five years to understand their business model. Initially, they thought they were a bread and breakfast company. Yep. Then they started selling. You know cereals. I don't know if you know yeah, about this. Yeah. Obama owes right. Yeah. It took them some time to realize their business model, right? Like I'll give you an example. I'm starting another company with the. Uh, so this is this was my idea, but I'm starting within Tornit, and I'm um, I'm looking for a co-founder mm-hmm. um, who I could give a decent chunk of equity to, and this person could basically scale the business, right? Uh, along with me and my expertise and my team. But it's a gym alliance. So, you know, I I travel maybe 12 or 13 times in a year. Okay. And a lot of times when I'm traveling now, uh, they're developing nations in very small cities. And that's because I'm trying to explore the infrastructure that exists and how can we upgrade that infrastructure. And if Tornit has a business opportunity there or not. But a lot of times there are no hotels there, so you're going to stay, you know, you're staying in Airbnbs, you're staying in um, sort of homes, you're staying in hostels, you're staying in, you're basically spending the night, right? Yeah. Whatever you can, and whatever you can get the most amount of comfort there. There are no, you know, and there's a gym, let's say next door, you don't have a membership for it, mm-hmm. right? What do you do? You walk in and you say, okay, I'll I'll pay for the day. Yeah. It's basically that. So we're doing a gym alliance globally. Every gym in the world will be part of this alliance. It's like a start alliance for gyms. So you could use any gym in the world. So whether it's Gold Gym, LA Fitness, Good Life Fitness, a small mom and pop gym, right? Um, Anytime Fitness, whatever. These large chains will all come together. We'll make one gym alliance for the entire world. And I'm, I'm looking for this co-founder who can... You know, talk to my contacts at Good Life because we're doing so many things. Who've already said, yeah, we would be, we'd be more than happy to come on in something like this. Yeah. You know, the business model is very simple. Gyms, they want more revenue because the marginal cost of getting a new member in for a day is zero. I already have machines. What is this new? What is this person who's visiting me for a day? Is going to cost me? Like, tell me, what's the marginal cost of adding a new member to a gym? It's negligible, if any. Yeah. Maybe a bottle of water. <laughs> Maybe the shower, right, that, that this person's going to use. Maybe the yeah. towel that yeah. this person, but that's it. So gyms are going crazy about this, right? Like, a lot of gym chains in India, which is Anytime Fitness, Gold Life. They're like, Gold Gym. They're like, why wouldn't we? If you're paying us as a company, Gym Alliance would pay per visit to this to whichever gym they use and redeem their their usage with. They don't care. Like They're like, OK, we'll, we'll just do this. We, we will take the money for this one visit. And on the other hand, we can sell our gym package for a month, for a year, per visit to anyone. All you need is an app, Gym Alliance app. You download it. Whatever, whichever gym you want to search for near you, you search for that. You go to that gym, you pay per visit. You don't even have to sign up for the whole year. Mm-hmm. If you want to sign up for a month, you can. You if you want to sign up for six months, you can. You want to sign up for a whole year, you can. You don't have to. A lot of times, these you know gyms generally they work on a monthly membership basis. That's why. Why is that? Because they know that if we continue to charge on a daily basis, people will have to think about that cost.
1: Yeah.
0: Every time they come to the gym, and they there's a high chance that they will stop coming. Now they've paid. Majority of us still don't go, but they've got the revenue, right? Yeah. So I'm still looking for sort of a co-founder in that. So I continue to do these things. So this is the concept that you brought up? Yeah. That you you
1: thought of. You want to do use your company to build out. So you right. need a co-founder to champion
0: this. We do a lot of that. Like that's how Corsal came about. Yeah. Right? Corsal came about like that. There's a few logos that are not here. But there's a there's an AI company that we built that does sentiment analysis. Very cool. We actually did a sentiment analysis of Twitter in Iowa to figure out who's with Trump or who's with actually Biden. Yeah. Right. And you won't believe that the, the Biden was more favored. Really. In Iowa. Really. In tweets. Right. So it's crazy. But anyway, so we continue to like look at concepts, we looked at industries. Like for example, this Gym Alliance concept, right? It's not just some something that we thought about and because we have the resources, we'll just go build it. There was a lot of market research we did. There are three competitors that exist. One of the competitors actually raised $300 million from SoftBank. Like this is a legitimate business, right? Like there's competition there. And this company started in Brazil, it got acquired. But my point is, we just don't take any, you know, any and every idea that comes in the door. There's a lot of research, analysis, and you know, thought that's given into starting a new company. There's another logo that's not here. It's called Hoins, Home Internet Security. I think I told you about yeah. it a little bit. You know, not a lot of people know, but if you give someone your Wi-Fi password at home, mm-hmm they have access to your credit card, like they could access your credit card information, your passwords. Is that through the router? Is that through, yeah, that's through the router, right? So we're building a company, Home Internet Security, where we'll, if you download our app, we'll protect all your devices, iPads, iPhones, MacBooks, PCs. Is that by
1: encrypting the router? Like, we're send, we send an agent.
0: That agent basically blocks anyone trying to fish anything through the router, through the network, right? Well, that's that. That company also provides parental control. So if mm-hmm. you don't want your kids to use the iPad after 10 o'clock, that app enables you to control all that. You can you can set up parental control visions. So like per device? Per, ev- everything, for your whole house or per device. Like if you're if your 16-year-old kid you don't want to do anything with, you know, that's he's grown up. You don't want to interfere, but your 11-year-old kid, you don't want to, you don't want them to go, you know, on the bad side of internet. Yeah. So you can control all of that through the app. So in that company, I found two co-founders. One is a cybersecurity expert at a large, a big four. The other one is uh, a teacher. They're both extremely motivated to go get this idea. And I gave them 65% of the company. I only retain thirty-five, right? So a lot of times we will do all of this.
1: Yeah, I mean, you want the people who are championing, the running the company, to own majority shares. Absolutely. So they're, so they're they're on the ground running for themselves. Right? Absolutely. And motivated, self-motivated. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's great, man. Like, I mean, that's one of the things. Like, you figured out a way. Like, you're you're an ideas man. Like, you like ideas. You like working on problems and solving problems, and you figured out this mechanism where you can now build these solutions out and and launch them into the marketplace fast and efficiently, um, and you're pretty efficient at that, right? And how do you test and like, um, evaluate this process? Like, surely some companies that you do go through this process, they might not work out, whether it be the, the, the problem you're solving, the, the solution you provided, or the people running it, right? Is it a hedge by doing multiple companies at the same time? Do you
0: hedge it out like that, or do you one at a time systematically? So we don't hedge. Like we, if we're backing 10 companies, We sincerely believe that all those 10 companies are going to make it yeah we're not like a traditional vc firm where if one out of 10 is a winner we won Mm -hmm. we we want 10 out of 10 we actually believe that 10 out of 10 that we invested are capable of making a home run yep in terms of going there faster that's very interesting so i think that's what i really worked hard on so i worked hard on setting processes, development standards, development processes that get us or give us the edge of launching faster than anyone else can. So at least in, in, the, in the realm that we compete in. Yeah. So imagine you know, you're a startup, you go to, you hire software engineers, you hire designers, you do all of this and it takes you two months to kick off. And then you make a bunch of mistakes which every startup makes. It takes you eight months to launch a simple app that, you know, so this is a 10-month life cycle, product life cycle, right, for the initial development of the app. I'm confident that no matter what it is, we could build it in a month and a half. Mm. That's because of processes, systems, and frameworks I've set in the team. So I come up with an idea. We validate that idea. We do a lot of research. We actually spend money to figure out if this idea is going to sell. We talk to VCs. Prior to even building the product saying, if we were to build a company like this with these co-founders, right, with this business model, at what point would you be able to fund us to scale the business? Mm-hmm. Like we, we do all of this, we ask them and we have all these partners who will be very honest and candid. Some of them say, we don't invest and you'll have, you'll have a hard time finding an investor for a business like this. Majority of times, however, we only go to them when we know it's going to be a yes. So they'll say, okay, you get to X amount of users per month with a year, month-over-month uh, month growth over this, and this much potential revenue, and we can, we'll invest this much money that's going to get you to this stage. As soon as we have that, like our risk is gone. Yeah. All we have to do is figure out how much money is required for us to reach that position that the VC has set. Sometimes we don't even believe just one VC. We'll go to multiple VCs and get the same sort of answer or similar mm-hmm. answers. A lot of them gives, give you similar answers or same answers. Yeah. Right? And then we'll say, okay, we'll come back to you. All we now have to do is figure out, okay, to get to this point, does it cost six months and $100,000? Does it cost four months and $200,000? Or does it cost a million dollars and a year? And then it's just a matter of, can we afford it as a company? And if we can, we go out at it. Yep. Yeah. So,
1: what's your exit strategy here, Do you see a valuation-based exit strategy where, like, okay, you build this company up, the next stage investor comes in, and you exit at a certain point? Or do you create, are you more interested in creating long-term, like, cash-positive businesses, like, cash
0: flow businesses? We're actually interested in long-term cash-positive businesses, like, man, honestly, and, and I hate to, and I know, you know, our time's can end soon, but I hate to break this to, to, to the audience as well, whoever's listening. You know, by not creating a, by not investing in sincere business models that can be profitable, we're just creating a bubble. Yeah. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I was doing initially when I started the company. Yeah. I was selling for 50, my cost was 100,000. Yeah. You, it's not sustainable. So we don't invest in companies thinking that a VC would come in and you know, give it an X valuation and we would exit at that point. We're, we genuinely believe that these businesses will be cash flow positive. Like we believe in Wark's business model, right? Like we, in, we believe in Corsal's business model, we believe in Worker B's business model. We, didn't, we believe in Sugar's business model. We didn't invest in them, you know, e-service. Inv- you know, we, we hold, Decent chunk of equity in this company. This is a 20 year old company. We built a new mobile app for them mm-hmm. and we got equity into a 20 year old company. Right? Their revenues are through the roof yeah. since the app launched. Right? Like, we see, we invest in companies where we believe that once we have done our investment, which is mobile app development, web app development, any kind of software development, any kind of hardware versus software integrations. Anything to do with technology, we only invest in companies where we know that after what we have done to that company, once once the app is built, we know for a fact that the value is going to go up. Yeah. Right? Like, for example, Sugar. Before we built the app, the company was worth 200,000. Right? We built the app and we got them 100 users. Now we know that those 100 users are generating this much revenue and the company is worth a million. Like, we won't invest in companies where we believe that there's not going to be any value uplift mm-hmm. after investment. Yeah. Like there's no point if I invest in snapped. Snapped is already a large newspaper group. Mm-hmm. I don't want to invest in them, right? There's no value uplift by me building a mobile app. Well there is, but they're not they're not going to realize that. Yeah. No one's going to pay them for it, right? At the same time, we we look at we don't look at exiting, you know, in the next 3 to 5 years our strategy is a little bit different because once we invest in your company, who's your CTO as a startup? It's Tornit. So I'm actually flowing business into Tornit by investing in companies. So if, you know, people, technology, consulting companies spend, you know, X amount of dollars every month to market their services, suppose that X amount is $50,000. They're spending 50 grand every month to market their services to acquire clients, right? I'm spending that 50,000 in buying equity in a company. If I spend that 50,000 buying equity in a company, can anybody else win a sale from me? No, yeah. So, you know, that marketing budget may Mm -hmm. or may not work out. Yeah. This equity position definitely works out to acquire a client, right? And at least, hopefully, or at least that's our bet, that it'll, it'll pay off in the future. So that's the that's I the mean, report. that's quite a risk tolerance, right? Yeah. <laughs> You've got to stay with a stomach. Right. That's really
1: cool. And really fascinating mm-hmm. that you opened up about this. Um, I mean, what you are doing is pretty unique. I mean, not a lot of people are able to do this, have the capability to do this, and have the stomach to, you know, go through with it. Right. Um, so thank you for coming on and talking about this. And hey, man, it's been an hour. Oh, holy. It uh, flies by, right? Holy. Um, Yeah, this has been great. Thank you for coming on. Um, Look forward to seeing more projects that come out of TorNet and working continuously closely together, man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, man. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.